welcome to the IOD's Director's Briefing Podcast. This podcast is produced by the IOD's Policy Unit and provides timely updates, insights and commentary on the key issues of the day impacting business leaders. Welcome to this first edition of the IOD Business Book Club podcast. With me today, I'm delighted to welcome Patrick McDonald, the chair of the IOD, and Alex Hall-Chen from the IOD Policy Unit to review and discuss three business books that have one thing in common. They're all on the final shortlist for the FT Business Book of the Year Award 2022. Now, of the six books on the shortlist, we have chosen to review Disorder, Hard Times in the 20th Century by Helen Thompson, and The Power Law, Venture Capital and the Art of Disruption by Sebastian Malaby, and Chip War, The Fight for the World's Most Critical Technology by Chris Miller. Now, at the time of this recording, we don't know which of these titles will win the FT Award. It's due to be announced on the 5th of December, and it will be interesting to see if our comments have any predictive power, particularly as we'll be reviewing the books from the perspective of an IOD member. Ultimately, we'll be seeking to answer the question, would we recommend that IOD members go out and spend their money and devote their time to any of these books? So with that in mind, um, Alex, could I turn to you um, and you're going to give us a brief overview of Disorder, Hard Times in the 20th Century by Helen Thompson. Yeah, thanks very much, Roger. Uh, So Disorder was written by Helen Thompson, who is a professor of political economy at the University of Cambridge. And the book essentially attempts to get to grips with the overlapping geopolitical, economic and political crises faced by Western democratic societies in the 2020s. So it's really an explanation of the systemic dynamics which explain why we live in the political times that we do. And Thompson's core argument is that the present disruption we're experiencing can be understood as originating in a set of structurally driven shocks. And I think it's been clear that the past few decades haven't been particularly kind to Western democracies. You know, the industrialization, financial crises, mass unemployment and rising inequality have shortened life expectancies, undermined social stability and opened the door to demagogues and authoritarians. And that was before the pandemic killed tens of millions of people and Putin's invasion of Ukraine displaced millions more and upended global commodity markets. So the book itself is structured around three histories, geopolitics, the world economy and Western democracies, arguing that these several different histories are necessary to identify the causal factors um, at work behind disorder. Thompson begins with how the history of oil and gas um, has shaped geopolitics, arguing that energy has largely gone unrecognised as an important cause of geopolitical fault lines. And interestingly, she notes that Germany has been dependent on Russian oil and gas almost continuously since the 19th century. So rather than an aberration, the unseemly alliance between Germany's industrialists, its political class and the Putin regime, at least until earlier this year, should be understood as simply the latest iteration of a long-standing partnership between two complementary economies. And I think that explains a lot of the difficulties that Germany is now facing in disentangling itself from its dependence on Russian oil and gas. A key theme of the book is also how much of the turbulence we're seeing in the 2020s originates in problems generated by fossil fuel energies. Also, interestingly, how the green transition as it takes place um, will see long-standing energy predicaments continue, an analysis which feels particularly prescient at the moment. 
And that point around the green transition, I think, is interesting because the underlying argument isn't, okay, um, here are the causes of this instability and here's how we can fix them. But it's more around how there are structural historical forces at work here, which are in part inexorable. The disruption we're experiencing will continue from the intersection of fault lines generated by a geopolitical cycle that just isn't over. And then Thompson's history of the world economy argues that the post-2008 monetary environment has weak shock, shock absorbers, and so is a further source of instability, allowing for historically high levels of peacetime debt, which was particularly destabilising so for the Eurozone. Her history of democracies then argues that from the 1990s, democracies have become increasingly unresponsive to democratic demands for economic reforms that would increase uh, the return on labour, which for me brought France's yellow jacket protests to mind. And under these conditions, democracies have become particularly susceptible to their plutocratic tendencies. Meanwhile, in the EU, monetary union hollowed out the stakes at national elections. And in the US, we've seen losers' consent to elections has broken down. So this book, in many ways, is quite a pessimistic outlook uh, because it doesn't seem to give us much agency in our ability to mitigate disorder. But Thompson's final argument is that collective political understanding needs to catch up with the physical realities of energy and climate change. The current tendency of creening between technologically driven salvation and apocalypse just isn't going to cut it. So governments need to manage these risks and make palatable the likely sacrifices demanded of citizens, such as lower car ownership, both of which are fundamentally difficult tasks. Well, thank you, Alex. Um, you know, I, I must say, um, uh, just reading this book, I, I didn't find this an easy read. You know, the, there wasn't much storytelling in, in this book. And I just wonder to what extent you think this might be of relevance to a practical business person. You know, it, it is quite impersonal in its analysis, isn't it? It doesn't really give much scope for, for individual agency or the cho- indeed the, the choices of policymakers. It's very much focused on the kind of underlying structural forces, forces which are driving events. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it, it's first, it's not a particularly easy read. It's, it is quite academic. Um, and it's not a book I would say that will give a huge amount of, sort of practical advice and, and, and guidance and insight on the day-to-day sort of running of businesses. I would say it is potentially a useful insight into the structural causes of the instability that the West is experiencing at the moment. And the key takeaway, I think, for, for IOD members would be that this instability isn't going to go anywhere. And so business leaders should expect to continue to have to operate in an unstable geopolitical environment and be ready to respond to that as we've seen with Brexit, the UK's economic ties with Russia and the inflationary effects that that war has created. Yes, I think, you know, the, the, the emphasis in this book on the relationship between energy and geopolitics was very well timed, wasn't it? Because I understand the book was actually published on the same day that Russia invaded Ukraine. So and there are a lot of insights, I think, in the book, which which are kind of uh, relevant to that. I mean, one one in particular that I took note of, which was that. The Soviet Union didn't just break up because it discovered liberal democracy. You know, the weakness of the oil price in the late 1980s was was a key driving factor, which really made the operation of the Soviet Union increasingly unviable. So, you know, it's those kind of structural forces which have have been there in the background playing a role um, in, in geopolitics. Yeah, absolutely. I think Thompson does actually a very good job of of highlighting, as you say, the longer term structural factors at play. I think we sometimes have a tendency not to see how certainly present day events are, in fact, part of stories that have been playing out over decades. Um, And as you say, despite being written before Putin's uh, most recent invasion of Ukraine, actually, the book has many insights into the dynamics of the Russia-Ukraine 
EU relationship. Um, so from that perspective, it's a very interesting read. Great. Thank you, Alex. Um, Patrick, may I now turn to you, uh, and you're going to provide an overview of The Power Law, Venture Capital and the Art of Disruption by Sebastian Malaby. Indeed. Well, thank you very much, Roger. Um, well, look, this is a, a book with a thesis. Um, the thesis is that venture capital, or, or VC, is good both socially as well as economically. Uh, most of us, I think, know that venture capital is, is good for the venture capitalists on, on average, and it's good for those who receive venture capital on average. Uh, this book sets out to demonstrate that venture capital, uh, and in particular, the flavor of venture capital practiced in Silicon Valley in California, uh, is good for society as well. So the power law, the, the title, is essentially the 80-20 rule that we all know and love, taken to its logical extreme. Uh, if a typical venture capital house backs 100 startups, it would expect most to stutter or fail completely. But a very small number, less than 5%, might succeed massively. Now, for each failure, you can only lose one times your money. But if you happen to back a really big success, if you back a Google or an Apple or a Facebook you might make 10 times, 50 times, or in some cases, 300 times your investment. And that pays for all the failures uh, and leaves quite a lot left over. You, you can end up with a very good blended average. I found it a, a well-written book. The author, Sebastian Malaby, is a journalist. He's a serial writer of business books, and I think he does a good job here. Um, it's, uh, it's an exciting ride. It's high-risk, high-reward stuff. Um, I found it a, a very good page-turner. Lots of stories in this book. Um, famous names like Intel, Cisco, eBay, Airbnb, PayPal, all pop up. And famous people like Mark Zuckerberg, Steve Jobs, Elon Musk. Uh, and some of the stories, that really leads to the stories, these titanic egos clashing with the titanic egos of the venture capitalists as they seek each other out and seek out funding. There are some extraordinary stories in here. The book traces the evolution of venture capital from a tiny cottage industry uh, there were very few startups to back uh, and very few venture capital houses to back them through the era of the Internet, uh, which I found the most exciting part of the book. Personally, there were lots of startups and lots of backers, and they really were changing the world uh, right through to the excesses of more recent times when you get perhaps too much money chasing, chasing too few really big opportunities. And we've seen recently in the last decade, decade and a half, big busts like WeWork, Uber, Theranos have all cost their investors hundreds of millions of dollars, if not billions of dollars. Which brings us back to the importance of governance, which, of course, is a big theme for the IOD. Uh, you see towards the end of the book, too much money chasing too few opportunities, which means that the founders of the businesses end up with too much power. And the book argues that actually, having made the case for venture capital, uh, once you get to a, a really big size, a business is perhaps better suited to the public markets uh, to be quoted because of the discipline that's required and the structure that's required, the governance that's required, whereas a private investor with too much money to spend might just be willing to forego that. There are some problems in the industry. It's not all happiness and light. Uh, the industry is terribly cliquey, terribly narrow. Uh, there are very few women uh, or black partners, for example, of venture capital houses. Uh, and the book repeatedly highlights this as a problem. Uh, it's partly because of the network. And a lot of it's about the network, about who you know, and passing on ideas to each other and, and co-opting people into your ideas. And of course, that becomes a self-reinforcing prophecy. Um, the industry is trying to change. Uh, the book says that 42% of the partners appointed 
to venture capital houses in 2019 were women, but there's clearly a long way to go. The book does pull together at the end, takes all these stories, pulls together some lessons for venture capital and policy positions for government, which I found interesting, but I thought could have been taken further. I never really understood what it was that a venture capitalist looks for that distinguishes what's going to be a successful investment from an unsuccessful investment. Um, there are sort of hints there, here and there, but I, I don't know that I could be a more successful venture capitalist having walked away from this book, other than realising you have to be very brave. You know, you have to back a lot of failures. You have to be prepared to, to, to take a lot of risks here. And you have to be prepared to work very hard. The wooing that goes on of the founders, if, uh, if it's known that there's a good investment out there, it's quite extraordinary how persistent uh, how these uh, venture capitalists are prepared to be and how often they get slapped back by the founders. Finally, I, I find it a bit parochial. Uh, there's one chapter on China, uh, but most of it's about Silicon Valley, which is, of course, what it sets out to be. Uh, there are a few comments about the spread of venture capital through to different states in the United States and how extraordinary this is that the other states have managed to copy. Uh, but uh, Europe, I mean, London literally isn't in the index. Um, it's, it's quite narrow. But I thought it was a terrific book overall. Um, it's a real page turner, as I said. It's very well written, very exciting stories. We recognise all these names. Uh, I, I found it great fun. Great. Thank you, Patrick. Um I, what I found particularly interesting was the description of the culture, as it were, of venture capital and how different it is to perhaps the rest of finance. Um, you know, the, there are no spreadsheets. There's, it's not about forecasting cash flows. It, there isn't that kind of traditional finance mentality. It's something completely different. Yes. And the book um, makes a distinction between West Coast approach to finance and East Coast approach to finance. You know, the sort of East Coast of America, uh, you know, Harvard and MIT and so on, very structured and careful and cautious. Uh, and West Coast, this sort of Wild West approach to, to capital. I think the book does draw out a history that over time it becomes more structured. Uh, and there's talk about the prepared mind, as they say. And, and of course, the business... As it, as it grows, you get more and more niches and different venture capital houses find different niches, some of which are more structured and some of which are still basically, um, I like the founder, he usually is a he, uh, he or she seems pretty wacky, I'm going to back them. Yes. And, uh, you know, one of the, the explanations as to why venture capital really took off in California, in Silicon Valley, rather than, say, on the East Coast, you know, where, you know, it could have taken off around Boston, you know, close to Harvard and MIT and all these places. But, you know, California had that culture, which was a mixture of the part hippie, part capitalist, you know, that perfect combination, which works very well for venture capitalists. Yes. I mean, the book even hints that it's uh, thanks to the gold rush of the 1850s or 60s that, uh, you know, that mentality of just go for it, uh, stake out a claim uh, and dig and hope that things turn out right, uh, that it even you can even trace it back to that. Great. Well, well, thank you very much, uh, Patrick. Um, so I'm now going to turn to uh, the third of our books, which is Chip War, The Fight for the World's Most Critical Technology by Chris Miller. And this is the, a book that I reviewed. And Chris Miller is an academic. And when, when I saw that, I initially was thinking, oh, no, is this going to be another book a, a bit like, you know, to say, like Helen Thompson's book, a very dense, quite... Um, 
difficult book to, to read. But how wrong was I? You know, this was read like a thriller with a cast of characters running through the history of the development of sem the semiconductor business, how central the silicon chip has been to the development of our economies over the last 40, 50 years and how that will continue. And uh, you, know, it, you couldn't actually come across a more... Um, compelling read um, if, if you were trying. Right at the start of this book, um, it makes a very, I think, ambitious assertion. Um, it says, this book contends that semiconductors have defined the world we live in, determining the shape of international politics, the structure of the world economy, and the balance of military power. You know, that is a pretty bold assertion, I think. But by the end of the book, I'm pretty convinced that Chris Miller is right about this um, because really they, you know, the silicon chips and, and a silicon chip ultimately, a semiconductor is ultimately no more than a grid of transistors um, which can store data. Um, that really has been central to pretty much everything we have in the modern world in terms of technology, you know, from consumer products to computers to nuclear missiles. You know, without these things, we really wouldn't have the modern economy as, as we know it. Um, and what the book does is it takes you through this history, starting off with the likes of William Shockley, who invented um, the, the, the semiconductor just shortly after the Second World War. Um, at that time, um, he was able to put four transistors onto a piece of silicon um, all the way through to the present day where we've observed this law, Moore's law at work, which states that the number of transistors that you're able to cram onto a silicon chip will double every year. And that has proved to be a remarkably prescient prediction because today we're in a situation where the most advanced semiconductors have more than 11 billion transistors crammed onto um, a piece of silicon, which is essentially, uh, you know, th these transistors are minute. They're half the size of a COVID virus. Um, so the, the technology which is used to create them is truly amazing. But the development of this industry, you know, it really has shaped um, not only our economies, but also international relations. Uh, some, some, there were some amazing characters like Morris Chang, who um, used to work for Texas Instruments, was turned down by them as their potential CEO and was, was then invited by the Taiwanese government to go to Taiwan and to set up a semiconductor manufacturing facility, uh, which is now known as the, the Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Corporation, TSMC, which today manufactures about 40% of semiconductors worldwide. So that, uh, you know, that was a, a truly monumental change in, in the industry. Um, and then other people who played key roles in, in this industry included Akio Morita, the founder of Sony, who really took um, the sem semiconductors and put them into consumer uh, products. And that, of course, really underpins the development of the Japanese economy um, in the 70s and uh, 1980s. Now, we're in a situation today where 
the United States still very much dominates chip technology. It dominates their their design, um, the the software which you need to create um, uh, uh, semiconductors. Um, But what it doesn't dominate is the manufacture of of, um, silicon chips. Um, A company like Apple, for example, uh, which uses the most advanced uh, semiconductor technology in its uh, smartphones, does not manufacture Um, semiconductors. It relies entirely on outsourced providers, particularly um, the the, the, the TSMC, uh, to produce its semiconductors. Um, And so that is a source of of vulnerability um, for the United States, Um, especially when you consider that Taiwan is just a few miles off the coast of China. Um, And China is making huge efforts now to develop its own uh, semiconductor capability. The book recounts how uh, the cutting off of Huawei, uh, this this Chinese technology uh, mammoth, from US semiconductor technology um, in 2020 was a huge wake-up moment for the Chinese government. And since then, they've been throwing huge resources in trying to develop their own semiconductor manufacturing and uh, design uh, technology. They still only produce about 15% of global chip capacity. Um, And of course, that if indeed there were to be um, some kind of disruption of supply from Uh, of the supply of semiconductors from Taiwan, either because China decided it was going to um, implement um, the the reuniting of Taiwan with the motherland, or even if it decided to blockade Taiwan, um, that would be hugely disruptive to the global supply chains of semiconductors which currently exist. So one of the conclusions, I think, uh, from this book is that This is an incredibly globalized industry with very fragile supply chains. It's also um, very much focused on a small number of companies that play key roles um, in in the industry um, and could be very easily disrupted if um, the worst happens. So another sort of final um, conclusion or, or or issue which the book addresses is, are we going to continue to have this ongoing march of the continued sophistication of semiconductors, ever more transistors packed onto uh, uh, silicon chips? There's a lot of debate about that. I mean, some people think that we're ultimately going to be limited by by the underlying physics of 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 semiconductors um, and other people say no actually there's still huge scope for Moore's law to continue to operate and continue to pack more data storing capability onto onto these um, little minute chips um, and thereby increasing their processing power so we'll have to see actually how that develops but it is certainly I think a worrying question um, in terms of whether this industry will be able to continue as it has, or whether actually the vulnerabilities inherent in not only actually the globalized model um, of semiconductors, uh, but I should also mention the fact that Taiwan is sitting on one of the worst uh, earthquake earthquake prone areas of the world, whether that actually 
makes the industry very vulnerable. So I suppose in summary, this was a tremendously interesting read, full of stories about the pioneers of the industry and how they built it. Um, I think that IOD members will find this absolutely fascinating. So let me let us now perhaps uh, turn back to um, to to Alex and to Patrick. Um, ultimately, we have to make a decision about whether uh, these books are recommendable to IOD members. And maybe I could ask you to give each of them a kind of a score out of ten in terms of whether you think they're going to be relevant to, to our membership. Um, let me start with you, Alex. What, what, how would you like to summarise your view of that? So I'd say that as an academic book, disorder is very strong. But if we're approaching this purely in terms of how relevant and um, sort of accessible and interesting is this to, to business leaders, I would give it about a six out of ten. Okay. Thank you, Alex. Um, Patrick, how would you rate The Power Law by Sebastian Malaby? Yeah, as I said, I think it's a really good book, really well written, full of great stories. Um, and I, I think on that basis, it's worth nine or ten. I suppose in terms of relevance to, you know, a British mid-sized company that's not seeking venture capital and particularly not seeking Silicon Valley venture capital, I suppose it's less relevant in that sense. So it's a really good read, but I, I don't know how relevant it is. So let, let's give it an eight overall. Okay, and I'm going to actually give... Um, chip war a nine out of ten because I think this is a very um, poorly understood aspect of business the central importance of semiconductors and the, how they underpin so much of our economy and how actually they are incredibly important um, for for geopolitics going forward so I'm going to give that a nine out of ten um, so I read that uh, the average car these days has 1,500 chips in it. Uh, and one of the reasons that we're not able to buy enough cars at the moment is because they can't get the chips. It's, you know, it's the thing that's holding up production across the world at the moment. Absolutely. And I think, you know, com coming out of um, COVID, there were a number of uh, problems. There was a semiconductor shortage, um, which were caused actually by just a number of, of fairly random accidents in places like Malaysia and Texas, um, which just, you know, just severely disrupted the global supply chain of semiconductors. And I think that was a, that was just a, a sign of how um, potentially vulnerable, actually, the, this crucial industry is to in, any kind of breakdown in globalisation. Yes, I think that's right. I mean, extraordinarily, I think it's the Dutch who make the machines that the semiconductor manufacturing, the fabs, use. So you've got this very convoluted chain. Uh, and as you say, any one point of weakness um, or any disruption in that supply chain, and we all suffer. Absolutely. Well, um, thank you, Patrick, and thank you, Alex. Um, this is the end of the IOD Business Book podcast. Um, let's wait until the 5th of December to see who wins the FT Business Book of the Year award. Thank you very much. hope that you have enjoyed this director's briefing podcast please do subscribe to our channel to ensure that you are kept up to date on our future podcasts you can find more information about our work on our website at iod.com forward slash news and on our linkedin and twitter profiles you can also contact us directly via policy unit 
at iod.com. Mm-hmm.